Facebook is one of the biggest and most effective marketing platform on the planet. It's huge. Almost everyone you know is on Facebook and quite a number of brands and businesses are spending millions of dollars to advertise on it, including small startups, mom and pop shops, local restaurants, and even churches. You can spend as little as you want and target specific audience you want at the micro level. But the problem is this. Most people have no clue how to run adverts on Facebook. They either double, waste a lot of money, or hire someone else to do it for them. So my team put together a short course to help you. It's called Facebook Ads Mastery Program. It's a comprehensive ebook and a video course on how you can launch and manage profitable Facebook ads campaign for your business. And we made it super affordable too. For less than $10, you can have access to this course. Go to www.backchannel.africa forward slash Facebook mastery. If that URL is too long, you can just go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link and get access to the course. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Doton, coming up today on Building the Future. He said, um, Olumide, I'm going to give you $1 million. And I responded, oh, no, we're not looking for $1 million. He said, when the goddess of wealth comes to anoint you, you do not say you want to get ready for the occasion. You accept it immediately. You don't turn down money. <laughs> you don't turn down money. <laughs> We went to my dad and we said, oh, we need five million naira to start this um, business. And he says, okay, yes, I'll give you five million naira, but I'll take 50%. Yeah, my own dad said he would take 50% of, of the tough, business. Tough angel investor. <laughs> I guess that was my first leg- lesson in angel invested, but... Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is Olumide Shuyombo. Olumide Shuyombo is someone that you see but don't hear about. You see his work, you see what he's doing, but you rarely hear about him. He's got his hands in a lot of successful startups in Nigeria. He's one of the most active angel investors in this ecosystem. And a lot of founders that have been to this episode swear by his name. It took me a long time to get him here, even though we hang out a lot. But I managed to convince him to talk. (laughs) <laughs> because you really hear him talk. Alumide, welcome to Building the Future Podcast. Happy to be here, thanks. So, there's so many things I've heard of you. Uh, a lot of startups that you've invested in. Okay. Uh, from Piggy Bank, to Glue, to Heels.ng, um, to Fashpa. Some of the early startups that started in 2014, 2015, they've got your hands on them. Yes. Let's start from there because although I want to start about, I want to start from how you built your business, Blue Chip Technologies, but let's start from what got you interested in investing in startups. Okay. So thanks again, Dawson, for having me here. I think in 2014, um, Kazim, my partner in Blue Chip Technologies, and I, I started thinking about um, the budding um, B2C internet space. Um, traditionally, we had worked in the enterprise technology space where 
we're doing a lot of works for most of the banks and telcos. So Blue Chip was, um, I think in 2014, um, doing a couple of millions of dollars in revenue. But then you find out that in enterprise businesses, your revenue base is concentrated across or between maybe three to five core customers. And then you lose one of them and you can feel the bottom line. You can see it hit the bottom line immediately. So we started thinking, um, let's create another vehicle uh, where we can invest in some other ideas um, that we had and also invest in other projects that people were building. Um, so at the time, we decided to um, seed an SPV, which we called Lead Path, with $500,000 of our own money and um, start investing in businesses that we thought were going to be interesting um, and just invest using Leadpath as the SPV. So I shared um, that plan with a mentor network um, that I have, which consists of um, renowned um, businessmen in the, local t- in the local space. So I shared it with them saying, okay, this is what I'm about to do. It'll be interesting to hear your investment thesis on how you, on how you invest in companies um, in the traditional spaces like real estate or manufacturing and so on. And you were more defined. You wanted to just invest in technology, consumer-based business. Yes, but then um, I also just wanted to understand the thesis from the traditional investors on what they did because, like I said, they form part of my mentor network. So I shared that with them and told them about the tech businesses we wanted to start looking at. And then one of the um, folks who I, who I shared that with, who's a British Indian investor based out, um, based out of England, or based out of London, and he said, um, Ulumide, I'm going to give you $1 million. Um, to add to this, but then you have to change the structure and you have to do it in a way that can scale. And I responded, that, oh, no, we're not looking for, for $1 million um, or extra money. I'm just investing our own money into companies that we think we'll find interesting. And he said something to me that I always remember. He said, when the goddess of wealth comes to anoint you, you do not say you want to get ready for the occasion. You accept it immediately. You don't turn down money. <laughs> you don't turn down money. <laughs> and we took that, but then that meant that we had to create a proper structure. Um, we had to create something that was scalable. And so we started out with um, a typical accelerator model, and then, but then also investing in any company that was early stage that we found interesting. And this was 2014. This was 2014. So that's how we came across many of the companies that you that you earlier mentioned. I think it was also around the time we did the first call for entry. At that point, I'm interested in the level of um, activity going on in terms of startups. I started coming to Nigeria 2015, okay. um, and it was like a lot of things were going on then but you were observing the space just before then. So I want us to track back to your view of how the Nigerian startup ecosystem evolved and you started playing in that space in 2014. In 2014, um, at the time, obviously, there were there were a couple of... Um, we had CC Hub that started earlier before that. We had Idea Hub also um, at the time, um, also in Yaba. So Yaba was, was, coming, was coming on stream and um, we wanted to plug in. We wanted to plug into into that talent, into that talent pool and into um, the network within the whole Yaba cluster. So we, we came on board also in Yaba quite early. And um, I think at, at that time, probably the only other people writing checks locally was um, SPAC. Um, Chica had 440 also and then five labs. And then we also came on board to start writing some checks there. So there were quite a number of small startups. Some of them were super early, but they were interesting founders, probably returning from the UK or US, founding companies. And there were big players like Konga, Iroko, and some other big ones. Sure. Now you have $1.5 million. Yes. And you started a typical accelerator program. Yes. How many 
uh, companies do you have in your cohort uh, initially, first cohort that you had? If I remember correctly, I think we had about five companies, but we quickly saw um, the flow with the accelerator model at the time. So we decided that, okay, we'll do the typical, have startups, do a call for entry, choose a company of a couple of startups, have them work with you for three months, and then put them in front of investors in a typical demo day um, scenario. Uh, but we quickly found out that even in three months, those startups were just starting, right? So maybe a startup is trying to connect with a telco for billing, and in three months, they've not even finished the connectivity um, with the telco, or you're trying to collaborate with a bank. So in three months, the guys, we found out that three months um, runway wasn't even just going to work. That was the first part. The second part, too, was when the startups have even, had even proven viability in the sense that, okay, there's something in here. Mm. Um, we quickly found also that the whole idea of investing three months before and accelerating those startups was to have a pop on the valuation and put them in front of bigger investors. But then those bigger investors were not even existing. So you would have to put in another second seed in those companies. So we found out that the companies um, that we that we kept on, um, we did a first seed, did a second seed, um, just to get those companies to get um, to the level where they could be alive. And to keep before, the light on. To keep the lights on to when the big check can come. I think what you quickly realized there was a thing that I observed when I came to Nigeria 2015 for the first time okay. as, as an investor with potential VC and was that we call it then the escalator for investors in Africa is very, very short. Yes. Normally, you have this um, seed investor, pre-seed investors, or angel angel investors, and then you have this accelerator program, accelerator program, and then they can be quickly taken over by some other super super angel investors and mm. a micro VC. Mm. Micro VC would then get it to Series A, then you have mm. some bigger VCs, and then because they get it to P, it's so it's so well oiled in in, in in the valley. Yes. And the assumption that you can just build an accelerator program in Africa without all of those things there is just faulty yes. because you don't you accelerate to what <laughs> exactly so you accelerate into a second seed that's what typically happened and I think um, the opportunity um, also then presented itself for a couple of people who were writing checks at the time um, to come together to then give a single check so I write a 50k check. Um, maybe she can write another 50k check and maybe pull in about um, 150 to 100,000 and then give it to a single company. Those were some of the thoughts around solving that, that good fund gap because you find out that at the time the big investor would say, ah, These guys, okay, I like them, but ah, they are not ready yet. They are not there. Let them, let them still get to, I can't, write, I can't write anything less than $2 million. I can't write anything less than $3 million. And you on the seed side, you have maxed out on how much, you're, how much you have. So you have maybe put 50K two times already in, in that startup and you're like, oh, okay, I'm done. So that's, that gap was, that growth fund gap um, was, um, was crucially missing at the time. I want to talk about your um, thesis. Um, what are your selection criteria? What, are the what is the big idea you're trying to fund, apart from consumer and internet businesses? What is the key big thing that you're looking for at that time? I think what we were looking, or what I'm looking for, I'm still even looking for um, today in the companies that we, that we invest in is um, it's typically around a mix of the opportunity this um, entrepreneur is trying to is trying to tackle and what the size of the opportunity is, and then secondly, um, the the experience and um, of the entrepreneur and um, our belief in that entrepreneur. But then, more importantly, I think um, for in our market, right? If you want to think about um, from investing, um, if you think about the investment. Um, from an investment return perspective, the kind of companies 
um, that would do any acquisitions in our market today, um, for now, it would be, if you think about it, who can really acquire some of the companies we are building? In the corporate space, you're talking about the telcos and the banks, right? And then okay, maybe into switch um, on another end. But then you need to look at companies that, um, that, are, that, you're, that you're investing in now. And I think if there's no foreign money coming into, into this country, which local players or which local corporates do you think can even find these companies attractive to collaborate with and then acquire? So you also form some of our early investment fees. Interesting. So you're looking at that plug into the existing stuff that happens. <laughs> right. Um, I want to ask one more question about that time, and then we're going to Blue Chip, which is, which companies survived that period? Because a lot of, and I know that, uh, that a lot of companies at that early stage of an ecosystem, yes. some will die just naturally, not because the founders are horrible or, or they're not smart or the idea was already, was bad, but just the wrong timing. And they would then com- continue to then seed into other businesses. Yes. Which one survived? But some of the checks that you wrote and why? And the ones that died, why? I think the guys um, who survived uh, are the guys who quickly figured out the hustle, the hustle is offline also. And um, they decided to tackle some of those some of those things. The guys at Glue um, had different privates to see how do we actually make money and forget this whole I'm trying to be online or I'm trying to be the Instacart for this or whatever. So they started uh, with an idea of online shopping mall, um, like Instacart. That was the idea. Yeah. So they started out um, doing those fulfillments like a like a typical e-commerce for groceries, and um, focusing on different cost a different a huge customer base. But then he then also decided to get laser focus on um, the company or the customers who were repeat customers, and how do I even become profitable for my repeat business, and forget this whole I'm trying to conquer everything conquer everything at once. Um, so we found, interestingly, interestingly, when you asked the question, um, I started thinking about some of these companies, like even Fashpa, she did the same thing in terms of looking at what do I really need to do um, to make my company profitable or what do I need to do to make my margins, to make these good margins and to be sub- and to survive um, to a point where I can then raise bigger funding um, to scale this business. And credit to them, they all did survive. So you were thinking offline? Yes, we're thinking offline and thinking of, um, I think, laser focus on on how do I make, how do this margin sustain my business, right? As opposed to scale, scale, scale. Right, because they realized that the uh, the wrong way from, from the opportunity for raising money, uh, and, and that thesis that if you grow to some extent, you can raise bigger checks, yes. it's not there in Africa. It's not there. So you have to be a profitable business. Exactly. But then there is an argument against that sometimes. Okay. okay. Oh, I truly believe that. That's part of the running thesis that I have that, we, that, that also, uh, that I've been talking about for some time. Okay. But there's an argument against it. Is yes. that when you focus too much on profitability as a startup, you might do that at the expense of growth. And yes. Growth and it means that you might be just be focused on profitability and somebody else with so much money who is, who, is, who is able to figure out growth, who is able to understand the growth levers and a lot more money that they raise can just wipe you out. Yes, well, it's possible, right, in, in, in the market where the money is coming in. But then I'm not saying necessarily even profitability, but necessarily what the margins, what are, the, what are sustainable margins? Um, so focusing on sustainable margins while also even achieving some level of growth um, puts you in, puts you in the right stead to be able to even even if it's ramen profitability, but then still puts you in the right stead to be alive. You have to be alive before you can grow. 
Yes. So I get that. I get the fact that you have to be alive to grow. Of course, you have to keep the light on as a business. And, um, and I will totally understand the fact that in this market, there's not a lot of money. So you need to actually optimize for profitability and making money and revenue kind of. I, I know we can, we can work and chew gum at the same time and just being able to strike. Remember, I was talking about 20, we're still talking about 2014. 2014, that's true. Yeah. yeah, 2014, there was no money at all. <laughs> Only very few people were writing checks. Now, what was the average check size that, were, that you were writing then? Um, a dollar then, I think dollar then was what, between 150 and 160. So we we're writing what, 20K, 20K checks, 30K checks. Which is a lot of money. No, you're writing in dollar terms or in naira terms? In dollar terms. Okay. But then $20,000 was what, 3.2, 3.2 million. Okay. So, so, and then it, it's enough to get the companies to hire staff, to rent a place, sure. improve their business. And, and then the ones that survive, you said, were the ones that figured out the hustle is elsewhere and they were able to be profitable. Now, in that time, you, you got companies like Piggy Bank, um, Hills.ng. Uh, I met them in 2015 when I came to Nigeria. Okay. Fashba, I met Oye when I came to Nigeria as well. Quite doing well. There are other ones that I can that I don't know now. Yes. I also know that you invested in delivery science. You yes. invested in Paystack, uh, maybe after 2014. Um, there are other ones I can that probably we don't hear of now. So yes. they probably died. Yes. But maybe the founders seeded and became founders in other businesses. But which ones are the ones that actually died, and what are the key things that you learned from that? Oh, I think um, in terms of companies. Um, Currently not, as a company is choosing to die. In, in, I think when companies even die in Nigeria, you just find out that maybe you go to GT Bank and you see the founder, you see the founder working, working in the bank. That's as in obviously the companies will die, but there are no, there's not necessarily any announcement to say okay, X Y Z has happened or so on. Because most times even the customers have, the customers have all churned out. And um, but then the quality of those founders still means that. Um, they have that content, and you find them in some of the large corporates today. Um, so, for example, um, um, we had guys um, who were working on a health startup called Meditel. A couple of three great founders. One of them today is in GT Bank. Another of them has moved on to um, a renewable energy startup called Intellectric, which I also then founded, or which I also then funded. Great. Um, so you repeated also funding a founder. In the founders. That's, that's, and that's one of the key things that made Silicon Valley, by the way. Yes. That people found, especially early stage, they, they fund founders. Yes. Because even though the business might fail, the, that founder might be a repeat founder who would exactly. who give you back the money that you lost in the first one. Yes. So Inca today is running, was one of the founders of Meditel, but... He's founded a renewable energy company called Intellectric. I think they're part of the Mitana um, Mitana um, current cohort. Right. Okay. And and Paystack was another example of that, yes. where the founders founded a business initially uh, that didn't do well, and then left, and now founded Paystack. And the same with E, who founded from Flutterwave, who founded several businesses. Now I want to. I'm super interested about you. Uh, okay. Um, what you did to then make that couple of million dollars in 2014. Okay. Um, you studied in the UK, and you studied in Nigeria, and then you went to do your master's in the UK, and you came yeah. back 2007 or 2007, yes. You came back to Nigeria after your master's, and then uh, tell me about how you founded Blue Chip, and what are the key gaps that you saw that made you to do this? Okay, I think I've told this story um, a couple of times. Um, to some folks, and I think we started in 2007. So I came back end of 2006, um, 2007. I um, started focusing on after my master's program around business analysis, um, and also very interested in the business intelligence data warehousing space. Um, so I got um, 
a gig with one of the banks um, who was just, um, they were just building out a data warehouse project. And the company who had gotten the project um, was now building out a team. So I joined the team as a business analyst. As a full-time staff or just a contractor? So first, I mean, initially contracting, contracting staff with, with the company and then um, later on joining, joining the team um, full-time um, for one year. Um, and then it was during that project, um, I then met um, Kazim, who was an independent consultant. He had left um, MTN and Accenture, and he'd become an independent consultant. And this company then brought him on board also to work on this data warehouse project. So we met on the, we met on the project. Kazim was the team lead on the project. I was the business analyst on the project. And um, we worked on building out this data warehouse and BI platform for the bank. And while doing that, and we said to ourselves, that, okay, we can... We've seen the need. Uh, many of the banks, none of the banks or none of the telcos or none of the large institutions were, were using data in terms of um, understanding um, what their customers are saying, customer behavior, and decision support generally. So we decided, okay, we can replicate this as a full-fledged um, data warehouse BI consulting firm. And that is based on uh, just you're building the software to analyze the data or you're just warehousing their data and giving them back to them in, in a more clean f- format? It's all that and more in the sense that, you're, yes, you're gathering data from different sources and different source systems, cleaning the data, um, having that in the data warehouse. But then at the end of the day, once the data is in the data warehouse and it's modeled, it has to first be modeled into the data warehouse, you're then building models, um, analytic models on top of that for reporting and for, um, for analysis. So the whole algorithm and the same models we'd, we'd built were formed part of the intellectual property um, that we had at the time. And we said, okay, we can replicate um, some of these models in, in different banks. So a model for churn, for example, a model for predicting customer profitability and so on. And then um, we said, okay, what do we need um, to get this off the ground? We then came up with a budget of 5 million naira. Now we probably need 5 million naira if, if we don't make any money for about a year. At least let's pay ourselves, if we pay ourselves salary and pay maybe one or two people, um, some salary. It's five million naira will probably last us for about a year. And if it doesn't work, we'll all dust our CVs and come back to consulting. So let's pause a bit there. Okay. This is a fantastic story. It's rarely told in this kind of setting because a lot of people that came to this podcast are maybe startup who founded it. And I will find something scalable immediately. But I really want to really deep dive into okay. what you actually did. Okay. So it's basically data analysis, data software. Uh, you build a software and an algorithm that will enable banks to get more from their data. Yes. But rather than them building it in-house, you, you want to build it as, an, as, a, as a platform that they can use, leveraging okay. on your relationship with different banks. Yes. That, that was the idea. Yes, but then the, we built it, you build it for them, right? So it's, this, it's their data, right? It's their uh, data. Yes. But the algorithm belongs to you. Yes, the, the intellectual property then be, belongs to you. Okay, so and then you then go and do it almost like, it's not a platform as a service, but it's almost like a consulting, but they're using your algorithm. It's consulting, yes. Right, okay. So that was the idea. Yes. And then the payment, because the pricing for that is a bit different from the normal pricing, which is like the startup would charge like SaaS model. Yes. Your pricing is more of, we're coming in, instead of you having a whole team of data analysts and data scientists, we're going to do all of this for you. Exactly. So it's a consulting rate, X, X number of dollars per day, this is the project duration and so on. Right. So you did that for one bank and you said, well, we can replicate it for different banks. And then the level of engagement for that is totally different. Yes. It is more of enterprise sales, going to people and, and, and closing the deal, not on the phone, or by going out to drink and stuff. Yes. But you guys understood that. You, that's your word or you have to learn that quickly. Well, I think um, I'd always been a, 
the business um, savvy kind of guy, maybe because um, I'd come from a from that same background. My dad, um, I started at several businesses growing up, um, growing up in both in Benin and then in Lagos. Naturally, I'd already I'd always had that entrepreneurial um, drive in me, so I knew the art of deal making to some to some extent. So I guess it was that entrepreneurial spirit in me that also made me say, we can while working for one of the banks saying we can do this and replicate this for several banks. So Kazim, on the other hand, was more technical savvy. Um, he had, in fact, he used to be called the godfather of data warehouse in Nigeria, in Nigeria at the time. So I said, okay, this partnership um, would work. We had seen each other, working with each other for, for about a year while on that project. And then we then decided, that, okay, we can do this together. We needed five million naira, like I said, um, um, which was the amount we came up with that we need to start. But then, okay, where do we get this five million naira from? So we went to family. In fact, uh, we went to my dad and we said, okay, um, we need five million naira to start this um, business, blah, 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 blah. And he says, okay, yes, I'll give you five million naira, but I'll take 50%. Yeah, my own dad said it would take 50% of, of tough, the business. Tough angel investor. <laughs> yes, that was, so that was, I guess that was my first legend, lesson in angel investing, but, or maybe vulture. And he said, um, yes, but then we'll sign a share buyback agreement. Um, so that was the first time I saw a share buyback agreement to say, okay, you pay me back the money um, and you can get your shares back. And um, you're paying back in multiples. You're paying back. Said, in fact, the agreement was thinking about it now was a stupid agreement because it said the price to be determined by both parties, right? Who det- how do you how do you determine the price by by both parties? But interestingly, we paid him back. This, so this was in, now in 2008 when we started. And we paid him back towards the end of, of that same year. He just took back the same five million naira. He gave us back our shares. He took the five million naira and he took 50% of my brother's company. <laughs> <laughs> Your brother's company that was not related to you. It yeah. <laughs> so he had just moved back and he had set up an, he had set up an advertising firm. So he then took 50% of his advertising. Without share buy, buyback? No, with the, with the same share buyback agreement. Okay. Yeah. And then also he, got, he just did the same thing. The same thing well. he did, yes. That was quite good. That's a good angel investor, dad. I guess. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me about when you started and the challenges. I know you have some challenges and opportunities. I want to know about your first deal. The first okay. deal that made you think, okay, probably maybe we will not be dusting our, our, uh, our CV for a long time. And how that came about. Okay. I think the first ever check we picked up was for 385000 just about 400 k then. Uh, and we got that quite early. But then it was just important to, uh, to start something and to know that, okay, someone is ready to pay for, um, for, for a service. And the company then was CFS West Africa. Interestingly, we got a call saying the company was looking for some business intelligence, um, consulting, um, folks or resources. We decided, okay, Kazim and I, then it was just Kazim and I um, at the firm and then an office manager. And we said, okay, no problem. We'll head down to the office in VI. We were, our office was on Unicorn at the time. So we, we headed out to VI. There was traffic, jumped on the, jumped on Anokada, <laughs> got to the client's office. And then the client then said, I should come in and Kazim should stay, should stay outside. And I was wondering what was going on. <laughs> What's going on here? Apparently, they were looking for resources to hire. They were looking for um, they were looking for staff, actually, to, to hire to fill the business intelligence. So, so they got me inside and they started interviewing me. Okay, what, is, what universities did you go to? What have you done in the past? And so on. And I said, I know, okay, we're actually a consulting, BI consulting firm. We can, we can um, hire and we can outsource one of our, of our resources um, to you. And we can provide, um, as a company, we can provide support to, to that resource that we've outsourced to you and so on and so forth. And interestingly, at the time, we had only interviewed technical resources. We had not really concluded the hiring, the hiring process. So we quickly, after that meeting, I told them that, in fact, my partner is outside. So they brought Kazim in and 12, 12 of us then spoke to 
to the client and we convince the client from a position of hiring us as staff to say we can outsource the staff um, to you and you would provide support to that staff. So we quickly concluded our hiring process of our first our first staff. Your first staff. <laughs> Prep but, team. But, but can't you do that yourself? Okay. No, the plan was that that staff would then be working. In then the staff would then, so we now out, so we hired our first staff and outsourced prep team um, over Kazim prep team technically over over two, three days and then pushed them forward to the client and then we were supporting the client from the back. So for us, it was just um, an interesting one to um, to get um, to get the ball rolling, at least to have a client reference. Wow! So th- that, that's a typical good story in the sense that you were able to take advantage of, a, of an opportunity that arised then. Yeah. So three hundred ninety-five thousand naira got you going initially. Probably not a lot of margin, but it, it's a, it was a proof to you. It was to get the client reference. So when they say, "Okay, what have you? What has who's blue chip working for?" Then you can at least you can you can say that you're working for X Y Z client. Right. And then the next one. Well, um, the next, um, so good for us also, like I said, Kazim had been um, doing some independent consulting at the time. And so Kazim was well known in the market in terms of technical abilities and they used to call him godfather of data warehouse. Um, several companies started reaching out to us. We got a very interesting project with um, NDIC, the Deposit Insurance Commission, and which was um, saddled with the task of getting depositors position at the time of post-Soludo. So most of these banks had, um, some of the banks had failed and um, NDIC now had to get what was the depositor's position as at the time the bank failed. So we then had to go into um, the old, the failed bank's databases, recover that, restore, and um, and then um, create a reporting platform for them um, that was used to um, determine depositor's position. So that project was quite a big project and we got that project based again on technical skills of, of the team and the founder and um, at least we even had a reference, at least we had a client reference, not necessarily what we had done for the client. And um, they believed in us, so took a chance, took a chance with us. And it was actually a very large, um, large project at the time. But it's interesting when I say large, because all of a sudden, once you close the project, the project doesn't sound, it doesn't seem large again. Like you're not thinking of the next big thing as large. But we closed that, and that was, it was from there we were even able to pay back um, the loan we got. Right, so you, you became profitable within a very short time. Yes, which is typical in enterprise sales, right? Um, especially if it's a consulting gig, you can, you can become quickly profitable with, um, with a couple of deals because it's basically deal-based. So, uh, and that helped you a lot to be able to then uh, have more hire references, people. hire yeah. people, and have more capacity to compete. Sure. But there are very few companies doing what you are doing then. Yes, in terms of data warehousing and business intelligence, yes. Probably um, at the time, maybe Tavia Technologies and, and Blue Chip um, were the only two companies doing that. But then there were other IT companies who were selling into enterprise, into several enterprises at the time. So I already want to understand data warehousing, basically. Maybe I'm mixing my understanding of it. Were you collecting their data and then store cloud storing it in before AWS? I mean, or using AWS or other stuff? Or what? What is data warehousing? So data warehousing is the concept of um, pulling data from different different sources into one source of truth and then into a well modeled um, dimension modeled database and then from there building out um, reporting or analytic engines on top of that. So basically. If you think about it from a banking, from a bank's point of view, they have their core banking system, they have their CRM system, they have um, even HRMS, for example. Um, data sitting in different, in different, um, in different silos, bringing this, this same, um, all this, all that data into a single warehouse to have a 360 view 
360 view of the customer. So for example, once the data is in the data warehouse, you can see that Dotson, who has who you have gotten his call, his balance, his current account balance from your core banking. You can once you what the data is in the data warehouse, you can see that okay, Dotson, who has a current balance of XYZ, also made a complaint from the CRM system because now the data is modeled into a data warehouse and so, you can so report that's 360. But there are a few platforms that do that and that some startups are trying to ta- attack that model where they build like a platform as a service so companies can just plug in uh, into that and they put their data, it cleans it and then they can do all those 360 view. Yes. Uh, but for big enterprise who are very conscious about uh, data protection, um, I- IP, yes. uh, and all the, a lot of other things, they don't want to do that kind of stuff. Is that the advantage that you guys plug into or, or, or no. um, cloud-based software are not that common. Yeah, but even if you have cloud-based software, somebody still has to do the dirty work of data cleansing and consolidation, right? So, um, and even you can do this on the cloud or you can do this on-premise. Most of the companies we work with, obviously, are doing this on-premise, but then there's also an um, increasing adoption of moving um, this into the cloud so they don't have to play for any processing power um, for for consolidating their data and they can start doing this um, as, a, as a service on the cloud. So, tell me more about I know there are a lot of things that have evolved since 2008 in that space, yes. uh, especially with regards to AI, machine learning, sure. and, and how, is, how is that shaping your business model now? Oh, yeah, so we've, we pride ourselves in saying we're, we're, at the f- we're being at the front of, because we're one of the early um, data warehousing business intelligence company, and now everyone's talking about AI, machine learning, and we pride ourselves in leading that, in leading that conversation, in leading that conversation also. Um, so we we run programs in terms of scaling our people, um, um, and then taking taking this discussion to the clients. So you find out that um, we are the ones um, championing this same um, discussion, and we have we have a foot to stand on because we we built out most of their their core infrastructure um, for this. So whatever things you are doing on AI and whatever is still feeding off a data warehouse, a data warehouse um, somewhere. So we're seeing increased adoption um, within our clients, within our clients' environments in terms of um, how they're applying um, some of the concepts um, and some of the models we are building using, using, using this new concept. But, but what about the talent um, gaps that exist there? I know mm. that there are a lot of smart people in Nigeria, for example, mm. um, numeric graduates, mm. physics, maths, uh, computer science, yes. but there's still not a lot of... Sure. Um, Expertise on uh, machine learning and there AI, and even even data science is there isn't. So there how isn't. do you how do you work? There isn't. So with we that? we do two things. Um, we we run a program every year where we take in um, about five to six people. We train them on business intelligence, um, data warehousing, data science concepts, and we pay them actually um, for that period. And successful people we then onboard as analysts. That's on one hand. On the second hand, we're supporting. Um, data science Nigeria um, actively. Um, what Bio is doing is, um, is very, very commendable. So we're doing the um, blue chip um, campus. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, alongside Data Science um, Nigeria, um, a boot camp um, across, um, and a competition across all the universities, uh, most of the universities in, in Nigeria in time to find talent that can feed into, that can feed into our pipe. So that, that, that's what you're doing to, to do that. Yeah. That's great. So I know you also work with, is it Oracle? Yes. How, how does that play? Okay, so what had happened was as we were, um, as we were building out um, um, 
our consulting business. Um, we we'll typically, as consultants, recommend the platforms that they can that a data warehouse could run on. So, for example, we we'll recommend Oracle as as the data warehouse as the um, as the data warehouse platform. So the clients would then have to go and buy Oracle licenses. And so we were doing that, recommending Oracle, and then Oracle. Some of the team members in Oracle then said, oh, "Okay, you guys recommend us a lot. Why don't you then become partners with us? You become more enabled, and you can also make money from reselling." reselling um, Oracle software and um, become certified. Uh, we, are, we, we did have some certified engineers then, uh, but then become certified as a company. Um, so we became Oracle Gold Partners um, and then started going to markets um, alongside um, the Oracle team um, and trying to push data warehousing and BI. And that is a good profitable start. Oh yeah, very, very. Now, you built this enterprise business. Yeah. You understand the startup space. Yes. I want to see, is there a gap that to build an enterprise-based startup that can scale? I know your business, you might not see it as a startup, not because of uh, the, fab, the, um, the age of it, but in terms of the structure, it's more of a consulting. You're more like a McKinsey for data than a startup. Okay. But do you see a gap where a platform can be built that is more scalable, that will grow aggressively like a startup? Yeah, so in fact, what we've seen or what we have even started doing, um, and it's very different when you're building a service company and a product company. Um, in the last year, we've started transitioning into a core product company. And so we did actually launched the product um, last year called Blue Prime, which was based on our experience of building out platforms, data warehousing, BI um, platforms for most of the banks. We then took out our knowledge, took some local nuances, and built out a core product called Blue Prime, which we're now pushing out to the um, which are now pushing out to, to the market. So all of a sudden, Blue Prime is also, is also available on the cloud. And then all of a sudden, you become a products company that even other companies um, like Blue Chip can even resell, resell your, own, resell your own solution. And then it gives you the opportunity to scale into several markets, several markets at once and grow in the traditional SaaS um, software as a service model. Um, that typical enterprise startups would grow out outside here. How is that panning out and what's the price point and what are the kind of businesses you're going for in that one? So we're going for, um, we're still going for the tier one clients with, um, with some of the solutions we've built, but then they, they're able to move that um, from CapEx funding to OPEX, to OPEX funding, and, um, and they can pay for this as they use it. So there's, there's increased adoption for, for them and for us, there's predictability of revenue, which is very, very important. So be before now, the enterprise model is basically feast or famine. Yes. <laughs> you have lots of money. So you just have to pray that you have enough pipeline that you have built to make sure that even if one drops, something else fails it. If not, you miss, your, you miss yeah. those revenue targets. So, so you're moving to, to, to product business. Yes. Now, I want to understand from your own uh, view, uh, the challenges, the unique challenges of a product business. Uh, versus a service-based business, um, just to tease out. I know the difference between them, but just to tease out, what does it take to build a product business um, which might not make money for some time? You have to invest ahead, whereas an enterprise business, just people, and then you can make money quickly. You can return five million naira back to your dad within a few months. Yes. Apart from those obvious differences, uh, yes. what are the other key things? Maybe business development, sales cycle, pricing, and all those things that might actually stand out as sure. difference between them. In terms of um, lessons that that um, active lessons that we've seen, 
um, is, is, in, is around standards and standardization. Once you're building out a core product company, um, in fact, it was one of the reasons we jumped up on the ISO, um, on the ISO 9001-2015 um, certification because we felt um, certain things had to be in place. Um, because once you're running, once it's, once it's a deal-based, um, service-based organization, it's like, okay, one deal has come, um, let's close the deal, and we quickly, we quickly have people deployed, deployed to close. Uh, but once you're building out a product, setting standards, setting standards have to follow. Um, continuity has to be in there. Um, so you find out that um, the mindsets, the mindsets of even the engineers and developers change in terms of how do we, how do I make sure that even though I'm not here um, tomorrow, um, somebody else can can continue from from where I started from. If you're just delivering a service, you've delivered the service to Bank A, you're gone, they're supporting it, they're supporting some of those things themselves. So um, you find out that um, with products, with once you're transitioning into a product company, a lot of standardization and standards have to be adhered and quality management, quality management becomes, um, becomes very important. Secondly, also, you, you then understand pricing a bit better than, than, than in a service business because um, once you're also um, pricing out a product, you're thinking out, especially with how we've modeled our pricing around the SaaS, the SaaS model, you, you then find out that, um, like I said, predictability of revenue, um, how important it is to, to cash flow. Right, so the pricing is very key. The the quality is very quality key. Management, yes. The quality ma- management is quite key. I also want to understand the investment because I know you you did this from your from your um, balance sheet. Sure. But if you were to start out, what would you have taken into play if you were to start out? If you were to start out as a core products company from yes, from day one, I think um, it would be it would be the sales cycle um, and the timeline and the timeline to do that. Because um, with products, again, um, you, you have to also understand what reference sites would you, have, would you, would you refer to. Um, I think one of the key things that we have, because we had started out an existing business doing a lot of services, was reference sites never became a real key issue because you had, you had a host of them. So selling out your products, um, selling out our products was, was easier than starting out from from um, from ground zero. So doing that, if I was starting that again from ground zero, would be leveraging on the experience of, of the founders um, in being able to sell um, a, a key product, um, a key product to the to the market, and then understanding this the long the typical long sale cycle that that might exist and planning and planning for that. So wait, the the long sale cycle in product based business compared to because I, 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 I was assuming there'll be more long sales cycle in enterprise business than Yeah, but business. both of them, are, you're still selling to, in both businesses, you're still selling to, to enterprises. Um, the difference between what we are doing with our products, with the products that we've built now is, it's easier to adopt. Um, the sales cycle might be shorter in this case because it's easier to adopt um, paying $10,000 or 10,000 Naira a month for 12 months than a company deciding to pay um, 100,000 Naira um, immediately in month one for an enterprise, um, for an enterprise grade project. So, so the pricing is still high, but it's just broken down. And, then, and yes, you, and it's also an op- it becomes an OPEX model, and it's easier for them to for yeah. them to take on board. I want to take you back to the to the startup because yes. now I'm driving this conversation from your enterprise experience, which is quite unique, and, and understanding that from a founder perspective. I want to take it back to the startup sure. now in, in Nigeria, for example. Sure. 
what do you think is the biggest challenge that a lot of startups face in Nigeria based on you investing in several startups? And I'm asking not just about um, founder quality or market itself, but in terms of being able to sell and uh, ability to sell. The, because and, and the reason why I'm asking that question is this. I found a lot of startups are very good at pitching and mm. getting grants or getting investment than mm. actually selling. They're mm. actually going out there to sell, whether they are doing consumer-based business or, or, or but more of enterprise, B2B mm. business. Uh, what is your view about that and what can founders learn from people that are built what I would call traditional enterprise businesses? Yeah, I think many, many folks need to understand um, the art of the deal in terms of making, making several deals with, with renowned, with, with existing players. Um, because um, a, a startup partnering with a bank for example, on setting initiatives, all of a sudden has the might, has the might of a bank, and has the base of a bank to build on. Especially when the bank is a cooperative and willing, willing partner in the sense that they've seen something that you can offer. So first, understanding your worth and understanding what you are bringing to the table, and then sitting down with the banks um, or sitting down with um, people who have the base that can that can get you that can get you the accelerated growth, um, to do deals that um, that are beneficial to that are beneficial to both to both parties. You find out that once those kind of deals are being made, um, you're you're able to you're able to meet your um, your immediate requirements um, in terms of day-to-day survival um, immediately because you can get paid for that um, and you can you can also meet some of those growth those growth numbers you are meeting by leveraging on on um, on those organizations. So partnerships and Making those deals, um, I think, are very, very important in in our market um, because some of the the traditional routes to to scaling might not um, might not be available to to all to all those companies. So, looking out for for quite established players who you can do certain deals with um, to scale becomes very, very interesting. So, for example, a company giving out loans, partnering with a telco, all of a sudden has a base that they can that they can drive with and is beneficial to both parties, mm. as opposed to campaigning um, to consumers one by one. Yeah, because then you can leverage on what they've built. Uh, I usually tell people that one of the biggest network, uh, one of the biggest ways to grow is to understand growth levers and growth, growth partners. Mm. So people that have already, they have the audience that you want. You figure out what they need that you have mm. and, what, and, what, and you can partner with them to get access to their, to their network. And, and understanding what partnership actually means. Partnership is not you helping us, but mm. me helping you and we both helping each other. That, that's quite key yes. for startups. Um, now, I, I want to talk about piggy bank. Okay. Um, you are more than an investor in Piggy Bank. Piggy Bank yeah. founder, one of the founders was on, on this podcast and he talked about you, how yes. you gave more than just money sure. and you were involved in their business development, day-to-day operations sometimes and just helping them out in their initial business. What are your strong, because that's not your only business that you invested in. What, what, what made that to stand out? What did you see in the team or in the opportunity or in the market that enabled you to back the founders severally in until they founded, until they got Piggy Bank right? Mm. And, and, and what, would you, um, what would you advise uh, investors and on, on kind of shepherding that way? Okay. Um, so interestingly, I met, I met the team, um, the Piggy Bank team in 2014. So when we first started out, so then they had a concept for push CV um, um, that they that they had, and I I liked the team. I think um, the dynamics between the founders 
bunch of Covenant University graduates who had been friends for a long time and um, who had um, this, this um, interesting dynamic about them. So I felt, okay, sound guys, very, very brilliant guys, um, and who, who, have, who, have, who understand um, product, product development very, very well. And you can see that reflected in each of the products they had developed. So I'd seen the approach um, with Push CV. I'd seen how they had um, grown it um, and growth hacked it to, um, to, at the time, even one of the, it was, I think at the time, even the most visited job sites, um, even though they were not making um, the money, maybe other bigger job sites would have been making, but they were at the time the biggest job sites in, in, in Nigeria. And I'd seen the approach, and I think they also grabbed um, my, own, my own story that I was preaching then in terms of you need to make money. Let's um, forget some of the, let, how do you make money? How do you do some of these deals to actually make money and get something into, into your company? They understood that quickly. Um, and, um, so, and the way they, the approach to work in terms of coming up with different concepts and different things that they wanted to do and studying it and testing it out, um, they were going to always find something interesting um, down the line. So it was Push CV, it was doing well, uh, and then they came up with um, front desk based on the data they were seeing with Push CV. And then also they then started thinking of, okay, if people save, um, I'm sorry, people, we find jobs for people, okay, they start working, what happens to them after that? Because you find out that that market is a funny one in terms of, um, typical businesses, when you help a customer meet a need, the customer becomes a repeat customer, right? But in, when you place someone into a job, he's not looking for a job again on your platform. So now he's, he's working. How do, you, how do you still keep that person? Um, because the person is happy with, with, with you and the service you've provided. And I think alongside their own needs was where the piggy bank idea came from. And then, um, obviously, with them coming up with a platform like piggy bank being new, um, there was a lot of hand-holding in terms of like I said, deals that had to be made with different financial institutions um, for regulatory cover, um, going to markets with them um, to, to get some of these deals done um, was also part of what I helped with. And then you also were involved in raising money for them. Oh, yes. So um, interestingly, um, I get a lot of um, requests from, from older friends who I collect bonds in who have invested, wealthy individuals who have invested in several um, traditional businesses who keep on saying, Olumide, I know something is happening in this your tech space, um, but I don't understand, this your tech, I don't understand, you will just be calling numbers, but I don't want to miss anything out. If, some, if I miss something out on this space, it will pay me, and I will hold you responsible. So they're like, it's Olumide, whatever you're doing, just take, I know that you put our money, you put our money right. So um, the, the investors, local investors who came in at the group, to invest in the piggy bank um, last round was was probably done was it deal probably done in about two days? <laughs> about two days over drinks. Yeah, two days over drinks. And just okay, this is it. You had always been talk, talking to me about opportunities. I've worked with this team for about years for, for a number of years. This and that was about one point one point one. Okay. So it was blue. Uh, it was um, Leadpad also putting some money. Um, core investors, a group putting in some money, and um, ventures platform. Ventures Colour. platform, yeah, we, yeah, got got involved in that, and that was yeah. a very super interesting deal, actually. So that um, I, I don't, I want to understand what you're now doing with Leadpath. Uh, you mentioned about 1.5 million dollars. Have you totally uh, invested that? No. 
you you're still investing as lead part now. Yes, I'm still investing in interesting deals that we find as lead part or in the, or you personally. In some, in some cases, um, we've invested as lead part. In some cases, I've invested as as an as an angel as an angel investor. So lead path is still on, as but not running accelerator program anymore. Just lead path is still projects. on, not running accelerator program. We also have lead space, um, which is a joint venture between lead path and passion incubator. Um, so we, what had happened was we had a space in um, where lead path was in Yaba, and some of the companies had moved out, um, had grown and moved out, like the Push CV team had moved out, had moved out of the space, and so we had some spare capacity, and some of the companies had had died, for example. So we had some spec capacity and we said, okay, who's going to come and run run this space? I remember I also have the blue chip hat um, that I was wearing or that I'm wearing that I was wearing and I'm still wearing at the time. So we think we figured that okay, um, we have some spec capacity in here. Um, someone who can run can run this as a full co-working full co-working environment, have this building pay for itself um, in terms of running expenses, run some programs and can scale this space into several other areas. So um, the Passion Incubator team came, came um, had some discussions with them. We saw a right fit and went into a JV um, with Passion Incubator to set up different co-working spaces as lead space. Right, and, and that is going on. With, That's going on now. So, but you still have this vehicle, lead path, with the <laughs> 1.5 million. Are you planning to raise more funds for that or you just want to uh, write the checks that you have. I think I, for us, um, we're, I'm not. I'm not raising it because even the 1.5 million we've raised, it's is came in as a as investment into lead path, right? Not we're not. It wasn't a fund per se, right? The 1.5 million came from what three other people and ourselves. So um, I'm not. We're not actively raising any other. I'm seeking out to raise any other fund. We're just going to invest in companies. Um, that we find interesting, invest in other um, builders um, that we see um, doing the same thing, work in partnerships with the likes of Ventures Platform and other companies that we see. So just, okay, so co-investing. So exactly, co-invest. You're not actively looking for deals? You don't have like deal sourcing process in place? No. But deals come to you anyway. Deals come to us, thankfully, <laughs> through, our, through our friendship and partnership and, with and, other people. And reputation. So... One of the last questions I want to ask is about your view about this ecosystem, what is happening, and how you definitely you've seen it grown. You've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of big players come, uh, Y Combinator, Five for Next Startup, um, Techstars, uh, shaping the game. Yes. Uh, big money coming, eight million dollars, ten million dollars, uh, Series A, which is yes. quite good for everyone. Um, what are your views going forward now? Um, if you also have a unique view of what is happening in the Nigerian tech ecosystem. Yeah, I think. Um the market is maturing, um, and um, we the signaling is there in terms of, and we need that signaling to be sustained, um, right? And we need we need to be rooting for everybody in the market because um, success for one is success for all um, in in this game that that we're playing um, because of the signaling effect that that has. So I think um, for us, a lot of collaboration um, is required to build to build out this ecosystem together. And um, I think um, four years four years ago, right, um, you wouldn't have been talking about um, young folks um, coming out of universities um, with with bright ideas, getting getting the kind of funding they are getting today. And but it's happening, and it can only mean well for um, for for the ecosystem. And so I think as those companies um, grow um, and they, they mature. Um, Founders maybe make some money off some from secondary exits as will start to happen 
as we start to happen down the line, um, that money comes back into into the ecosystem in feeding in feeding out um, other 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 startups, and slowly and surely um, we, we will get there. And and also the, one of the key reasons why um, there should be success in the ecosystem is is also for um, signaling. So when you yes. have big exits and people can point to founders that made good money yes. from exit and investors that made good money sure. from a particular exit, it attracts good oh, yes. talent, it attracts more money in. Some of those people that were talking to you about, I know there's something happening there, they now have evidence. Yes. So, okay, I'm going to put money because I want to be like that guy. And they that see me driving my G63, they, yes. will, they, will, they, will come after, <laughs> they will come after me to see where we'll pay for it. But, but <laughs> and then they know that that G63 is not coming from blue chip, it's coming from you investing in, a, in let's say, piggy bank, yeah. and then it became huge. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you'll be able to tell them that, and, and then maybe it will get them interested. Yeah, <laughs> Just yeah. <joking. laughs> That's quite good. So, uh, you know, in, in this podcast, I normally round off with um, uh, four questions, um, okay. five round questions. I'm going to ask you that. But okay. before then, I want to ask, what is next for Lumide? You're running blue chip. You're into investing, like, I'll say part-time now. Um, and you're doing what? Um, okay. And you're relatively young. So what is, the, what is the big vision or the next chapter you're hoping to get into? Um, I think um, even with blue chip, right, we are, we, are very, we are still in a very, very high growth market, right? There's still a lot to do. We've just opened an office in, in Kenya, in DR Congo um, also. So there's a Pan-African, there's a Pan-African um, um, growth plan that we have that's taking a lot of my time. Um, so right now, how, to, how do we achieve uh, Pan-African reach is, is foremost on my mind. Um, and then um, my second hat, um, obviously, um, which is investing in, in some of these companies, is how do we help um, some of these companies achieve um, achieve that that huge scale huge scale success um, that we are looking for, both for us and even for the um, for those for those founders for those founders themselves. So it's I guess it's more of um, scaling scaling what we what we built to to bigger monsters. And. Um you also got involved in a lot of offline businesses like hospitality and, and stuff. And you, are you gonna, <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> yes. Are you, are you still going to be continuing investing in those kind of real brick and mortar hospitality businesses? Oh, yeah. So we have doubled into real estate. Um, also, we have blue chip cuts um, somewhere in Lekki. Um, which is? Oh. Which is a, um, a building of... 10 three bedrooms, um, four one beds, which was, and some of the investments we've made, uh, or some of the offline, as you would call it, typical investments we've made have been, have been opportunity driven in the sense that, okay, um, there was an opportunity for a JV um, with, a, with a landowner, and we, we went in there and, and took advantage of that. We'll learn from that, we'll see whether we'll continue doing that. Um, in the hospitality space also, um, there was an opportunity to invest in a in a lounge and, and nightlife and nightlife business, and we looked at the returns. We went in there, um, and I invested as um, as an angel, as an investor looking for looking for returns. It didn't have to matter what, um, as long as it was legal. So, um, for me, yes, investing in in things we find in, interesting would always would always be what I would do. So, big big picture for you: grow blue chip to become multi. More, more multi-million dollar business. Yes. Still keep supporting startups. You're not having you're not having any intention of going to politics. No, no, no intention of that. No. 
just want to be a mogul. That's not intention of that. <laughs> That's good. Let me finish by by this final question for okay. you. Um, um, and it's just quick answer to them, basically. Okay. So, what is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Let's focus on blue chip. Um, trust in um, resources. Um, so hiring the right people and and the, we're in a very low trust environment. So you find out um, you have you have people. There was a, we have a recent a recent issue in our, um, where someone who was working with us was using was was going out there um, and getting deals for himself for, in for his own company on the side. So you find out that, and meanwhile, these are people that you've you've trusted in in one way or the other. So, um, having the right people, um, hiring the right people, it's, it's still a big it's still a big headache. But we, I think we've gotten it right most of the time than we've than we've not. But when you don't get it, when you don't get it right, it hurts a lot. How many people have we got employed? For you? I think Blue Chip now we're about 103. That's big. Yes. So you have this office and several offices elsewhere. Yeah. So. Good, good enough for us to, most of our um, projects are also on the client's environment. So we have um, spaces, um, project offices in different client environments alongside our office where we are today. What is your number one growth metric? What do you look at in your business that indicates that you're growing? That indicates our, our yeah, growth. growth yeah. Well, obviously, for in, what, in, in blue chip, um, I'm, I'm actually, that's what you're referring to, we have... Um, and in typical enterprise sales business, the top line is the top line is very important because um, once you're once you're able to grow that in terms of number of deals, it also signifies the number of deals that um, that you're that you're able to close, and then um, the margins differ in in each of that. But then once you are growing the top line, um, you're you're fine. Which book are you reading at the moment? Well, I just finished um, Bad Blood, um, the story of. Um, Tyran- um, Tyrannus. Tyrannus. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. So the guy that actually blew the whistle on Tyrannus yes, yes. talked about the deep story around it. Yes. That's interesting. Yes. Many lessons to learn there too. That you can sell and you can oversell and put yourself <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite good. Uh, which business is getting you excited at the moment? Um, Paystack, Piggy Bank. Yes. Of course, we invested in them, but, <laughs> but, but then they, they're quite interesting business, to be honest. And I get quite a number of people talk about that in this, in, on the, yeah. in this podcast as well as Paystack or Piggy Bank as one of those interesting businesses that, that they find exciting. So, Olumide, it's been a pleasure having a chat with you. I've learned a lot about <laughs> how to build an enterprise business in Africa, especially in Nigeria, and how to also pivot into a, a product business. So thanks for coming to the show. Thanks again. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised.
Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E S T A R T A and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.